When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Happy New Year, music nerds, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 156, and my guest this week is an incredible mandolin player and composer, Mr. John Reichman. Thank you for tuning in, everybody, this week and every week. I sure appreciate you joining me. This is the second last episode of season seven. Um, I'm going to be taking a little break after the next episode and getting things ready to roll with season eight, which will come sometime in the spring. So I hope you all had a great holiday and some time to chill and get recharged for the new year. Uh, I My holiday was pretty good, although I got really busy near the end there with a bunch of sessions that came in right at the last minute. So I was doing some mixing and some session work and uh, managed to get through everything and had some nice downtime here anyway. So it was great and looking forward to seeing what 2024 has in store and getting down to some interesting new projects. I do have a couple spots left in my mixing class, which is called the Henhouse Hang Mixing with Steve. It's happening here in Nashville in March. And if you'd like any info on that or to sign up to learn some hands-on specifics about mixing and that whole side of things, come hang with me here in March. It's going to be really fun. All the info for that is over at stevedawson.ca, the Henhouse Hang. And uh, yeah, as I said before, we have only one episode left in season seven. And that means that two weeks from now, that's going to be the last show of the season, which means it's time for the big giveaway. 
And that involves a whole bunch of very cool stuff from some of our sponsors. That includes a BBDI from Spectra 1964, which is a killer DI for pro studios, home studios, whatever you do. It's good to have a wicked DI, and this is one of the best ones out there. And from our friends at Union Tube and Transistor in Vancouver that make some of the greatest pedals, as I'm sure you know, we're going to be giving away a shiny pedal, which is a really cool vintage style fuzz, a tour bender, another flavor of fuzz from them. It's a silicon based fuzz, a little bit different and a lab compressor, which is currently out of stock. You couldn't buy one if you wanted one. It's an LA2A style compressor in a guitar pedal. It's wicked. We're going to be giving one, one away. So all you have to do, as I've mentioned before, to enter into this contest is to be a Patreon subscriber. It really helps keep the show going. I have a bunch of overhead and expenses to do with hosting and editing and the website and maintenance. And the Patreon is probably the best way to support the show. Uh, so you can join the Patreon or do a one-time donation if you're interested in supporting the show over at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Right in the top corner, there's a link to donate and you can sign up right there. So again, if if you uh, join the Patreon in the next week or so, you will automatically be entered, or anyone that's currently subscribed will also be entered to win some of those prizes. So thanks again for your support, and thanks to Chad Kent, who just signed up this week. Uh, he signed up to the Patreon and will be also entered for that contest. Thank you, Chad. All right, on to this week's show, we have the great mandolinist John Reichman. And I've actually known John for many years because he moved to Vancouver in the 90s. And when I was starting to do more acoustic music back around that time, our paths would cross at festivals. And I'd also bring him in for sessions on various projects over the years. He's a really quiet and unassuming fellow and in some ways sort of seems to get kind of taken for granted around Vancouver for how awesome he is. But that doesn't take away from his insane skills on the mandolin. John grew up in California and came up in the Bay Area music scene. He joined the Good Old Persons, which was up until that point an all-female bluegrass band, started by Kathy Kallick, and I'm pretty positive that Sally Van Meter was in that lineup as well, the great dobro player. And it was a really cool group. And he played with them for a while and then eventually scored a gig in the groundbreaking Tony Rice unit, one of the ultimate ensembles in modern bluegrass and acoustic music. So John toured and recorded with Tony Rice for a few years and really developed an incredible style that owes almost as much to like jazz, horn, and piano players, as well as different kinds of world music as it does to traditional bluegrass. Although John certainly stands up with the best in the world in any traditional bluegrass setting as well. After leaving the Tony Rice unit, John moved up to Vancouver. That's where I met him. And that's when around the time that he formed the Jaybirds. And that's a group he's been performing with now for over 20 years. And around that time when he moved up there, I was playing in a band based out of Vancouver called Tumbleweed for a while. And I was learning to play dobro and trying to make slide guitar work in a bluegrass band to various degrees of success. <laughs> and uh, Trisha Gagnon was one of the singers in that band. And after Tumbleweed broke up, she joined the Jaybirds. And also in the band is Nick Hornbuckle on banjo, Patrick Sauber on guitar, Greg Spatz on fiddle, killer band. John also made a solo record during the pandemic, and that's his latest album. It's called New Time and Old Acoustic. It's available now, as well as lots of Jaybirds albums. So make sure you check all John's music out. He also happens to own what many consider to be the ultimate mandolin. It's a Gibson F5 built by Lloyd Lohr in the 1920s. And there's a couple hundred were made. And there's quite a few of them actively still out there, famously played by like David Grisman and Bill Monroe. But his seems to be the one that 
everyone covets. I think Chris Thiele's tried to orchestrate a caper once or twice to make off with it, but to no avail so far. So it was great to reconnect with John, who I last worked with on my album called Lucky Hand a few years ago. But he happened to be here in Nashville on the way to teach at a bluegrass camp and swung by the studio. And it was great to talk about all this stuff, his instrument, his influences, his recordings and his history. So you can get all the latest info on John and his tour dates for his solo stuff and the Jaybirds over at johnreichman.com. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with John Reichman. So John Reichman is here. That's exciting. I'm here and I'm Woo. I'm excited. Because we've known each other a long time. And yeah, yeah, I just happened to ask if you were... If you were uh, into it and you just happened to be here. Yeah, lined up perfectly. That lined up perfectly. So we just had some delicious food and you mentioned, I want to actually like jump in with where we left off. Oh, talking. sure. Because sure. you were telling me about your crazy bootleg tape collection of live things. And then you started talking about uh, uh, meeting Bill Monroe. And that's right. what I want to hear about. Yeah, well, I was have all these live tapes and different, you know, memorabilia and recording um, things on tape. And um, in 1982, I was uh, playing with a band. I was still in California and playing with a band called The Good Old Persons. And we were booked at a festival in Southern California and Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys were there. And Kathy Callick, the leader of that band, had gotten a no bill through her... Uh, her boyfriend, then husband at the time, uh, Butch Waller, who was very Monroe-style okay. um, mandolin player, great player. And they, they, you know, got to know him and visited him. So um, we had access to Bill, maybe that some other folks didn't have at the at the festival. But anyway, this my uh, recollection of this experience is somehow I was in a hotel room with it was Bill and I, and we were the only ones playing. I we swapped mandolins and you know played played some tunes together. But there were also a bunch of people listening, and someone recorded it. And so he's people were asking him to play tunes, you know the you know and different things. And you know I was playing along as best I could, and I, I knew some of his music for sure. You know I was a big fan, but it was like I, my memory of that time is is very kind of. Um, clouded because it was so intense you know i'm there yeah. bill monroe and i'm playing mandolin too yeah and he's playing mandolin but he was he was he was cool and and uh i remember someone wanted to hear him play the tune patty on the turnpike because yeah. he has a, this distinct distinctive way of of playing and and he plays it and then he says now you can tell right there that that tune doesn't want to go any other place but where it's supposed to be <laughs> And, <laughs> don't mess with it, man. <laughs> yeah. And and this way Vassar and them are playing it. That ain't right. Really? And it's oh. hurting the number. Hurting the number. And, yeah, hurting the number. Because I, I guess it. Vassar, you know, used Patty and the Turnpike as a vehicle to improvise, which, yeah. you know, it's great. But it's not, you know, Bill thought that's not, no. it's hurting the number. So, so he demonstrated the right way again. And then he demonstrated the wrong way. But wow, it was, what you know, was the wrong way? Uh, he, it was really kind of random. It was like... You know, he just threw a weird note in there to show that that's not right. <laughs> I haven't learned the tune yet. I'm, I'm still kind of nervous about attempting it. But it was, yeah, it was like he was just stopped short of saying, and if I ever catch you, you know. Wow. So, yeah, he was a real, he was kind of a stickler, right? For, yeah, yeah, definitely. He had, his, like, he had his ideas how things should go. Yeah. But then, you know, my friend John Miller said, 
he was at a festival with his band. It was a contemporary bluegrass band, Country Cooking, or maybe it was Breakfast Special. I'm not sure, but but you know they were playing wasn't traditional bluegrass music at all, but they were playing some pretty progressive stuff. And he said, Bill came right up after the set and he says, I heard what you played. Now keep playing those new notes. You know, so, you know, you never knew who you're you going to get, I guess. Wow. The crusty Bill or the encouraging Bill? Yeah. But he was... Did you, you have know, any other interaction with him? Did I? Yeah. A few times over the years, that that was the, you know, most intense one. Uh-huh. And uh, the last one I had was actually here in Nashville when... Uh, Todd Phillips, I was here with Todd Phillips. He was recording an album called, uh, it was a tribute to Bill Monroe, Yeah. Uh, called The True Life Blues, and I think it won a Grammy that year. And uh, David Greer and Todd were going to record a tune called Old Dangerfield, I think, or maybe it was Old Ebenezer Scrooge, one of those tunes. And uh, there was a party at Mike Compton's house. So the three of us went over, and Bill was there, and he was just sort of sitting in a room by himself. You know, this Whoa. party was happening and he's just in this like, and he and David were, David Greer, good friends. And, 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 uh, it's weird to think of him as just a guy hanging out in a room. I know. Like, so, so David says, um, could you show us this? And he's just kind of almost, almost dozing, you know, wasn't asleep, but, but he says, well, I don't know where they put my mandolin. And I had my mandolin. I said, okay, well, I've got one right here. And he picked it up and strummed it. And then he took it and looked at it and, you know, kind of examined it, like, which I took as, you know, he, something about the mandolin appealed to him. Yeah. And then he started playing and he was kind of just in this weird space where he started playing Wayfaring Stranger in this kind of ethereal way. And then just over the next, you know, hour, he became more animated and it ended up where he was out in the middle of the party singing and leading songs. Really? And, yeah. It was, oh my it was God. Pretty, pretty great. Amazing. Pretty what cool. year would that have been? I think that was probably 95, maybe. Because okay. Todd was making this tribute, and I think he passed away, you know, before it came out. Okay. So, anyway. Yeah, wow. it, was, it was quite good. And then... There must have been, there's one. Oh, I know. The other time, significant time, was this band, uh, the Good Old Persons, who I played with, with for many years, uh, played at Bean Blossom, Indiana. And um, it was, that was great because, you know, it had this history of all the great bluegrass greats playing there. And um, I asked Bill if he would play the tune Get Up John. It requires the mandolin being cross tuned. So I said, I'll tune my mandolin up if you. And he said he'd play it. So he played this mandolin of mine on Whoa. stage playing Whoa. Get Up John, which is a great instrumental. So that was exciting. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. So I, was, I feel fortunate to have, you know, those brief encounters. And, and he wasn't like super chummy or anything, but he was respectful. And, you know, was he aware of your playing? Not really. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who had his ear to the ground for the no for the new. But if, but if he liked something, you know, he would let you know. Yeah, he didn't let me know, but <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, I'm you know, it was just interesting. Now I w- I want to hear this cassette. I haven't heard it, listened to it for a long time. But last time I heard it, I thought, why am I playing rhythm like that? That's so stupid. <laughs> so hopefully it won't be as bad as I thought it was. Yeah. Wow, that's a real chestnut. Amazing, man. Yeah. So somebody just happened to have a tape recorder there. Yeah, you know, it was probably a cassette recorder with a mic with a wire on it or something. Yeah. And, and it, I actually, I remember it was uh, Chris Lewis, who lives here in town, 
who I, I know from California, and she was she's a real great um, Monroe-style mandolin player, and she was trying to learn all that stuff. So, yeah, it was just an opportunity to, you know, go right to the, you know, the source of this music and yeah. get, a, a, you know, a version of some of these tunes. Yeah. So with Monroe, like, I always assume that mandolin, bluegrass mandolin players, like, that's a bit of a compartmentalization to call you a bluegrass mandolin player but that's essentially fine. that's you, okay yeah i mean that's, that's a big part of what you do yeah that's right i just out. assume that like everyone is heavily influenced by bill monroe because he kind of invented the genre essentially and the way to play is that true well from your yeah, either directly or indirectly yeah you know because they may be have been influenced by uh mandolin players who were influenced by bill monroe like maybe yeah. they listen to sam bush but not bill monroe but sam bush definitely listen to Bill Monroe yeah. or David Grisman and, uh, or they might have only heard Chris Thiele, but Chris Thiele heard, you know, John Moore who heard David Grisman, who heard Sam Bush, who heard Bill Monroe. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it all starts with him. Yeah. And for much. you, like, does that include, where, where do you fall in that well, category? Well, I, when I started, um, I was more maybe just taken with the music in general rather than mandolin playing specifically. Okay. But then I had access to a mandolin and that just became my my instrument. And but I liked Doc Watson a lot. Yeah. And the John Hartford aerial plane record was a big deal for me. Right. And that led me to Norman Blake and I was really, you know, super Norman Blake fan. Yeah. And Norman played mandolin. And then I discovered um well, you know, I was just learning tunes and there wasn't a specific mandolin player that I was really into till I heard Sam Bush. And that was just, I didn't know who he was. I just found this record called the Newgrass Revival. Never heard of him. But I saw on the back of the album that they had recorded a tune by Norman Blake and a tune by Vassar Clement. So I bought it and I just flipped over the mandolin playing. Wow. So he's probably the biggest, you know, inspiration, at least early on for me. But I heard Monroe records because uh, a good friend of mine who I grew up with who also was plays music and uh, he was he was a bit more into the hardcore traditional bluegrass and so I, I heard Bill Monroe a lot and, and I was always taken with that too but I wasn't as motivated to learn that real traditional style as much as I was just I guess soaking it in kind of like yeah soaking yeah having yeah. that you know I definitely respected it and tried to play it and still try to play it you know I, I love that stuff and I love all the you know history that goes with Monroe in the early days of bluegrass but at the time when I was a, a young player I was more interested in maybe flashier playing yeah which is interesting because that's not really what you're about no <laughs> no well at the time I guess I was flashy for my, for the day right <laughs> who were the other ones like in that first generation that you would say that you heard that were interesting to you as well I mean there was like Jesse McReynolds, well, probably. Je yeah, Jess, I love Jim and Jesse. Jethro Burns yeah. and people like that. Yeah. Were well, you for, into that stuff? Yes, definitely Jethro. But for yeah. bluegrass, I guess, Jesse, but I didn't really try to cross-pick. And uh, maybe this is more second generation, I would say, would be Frank Wakefield. I I, um, I don't even know that name. Oh, Frank Wakefield. He, oh, yeah. He's, he, um, let's see. He's a genius mandolin player. He's still alive. He's 89 Oh. And he recorded with Red Allen and he was in the Greenbrier oh, Boys okay. and a whole, you know, great history. And he was the person that David Grisman learned from most of his stuff. Oh. And so Frank could play just like Bill Monroe, but he also had his own uh, quirky way of playing where he would uh, play sort of 
a minor tonality to a solo's over major chords, kind of that modal okay. sound. Yeah, you know, sort of like like the tune "Cluck Old Hen," kind of that where you're playing major chords, but the but the melody has as minor thirds and right. flatted sevenths and that kind of thing. Yeah, and he's just a genius, and he did solo mandolin things. He had this way of of um, playing harmony with himself, and just just a great player. So I, I had his record, and I thought he was really good. I didn't really try to play like him, but um, and then I guess. I grew up in Northern California, and I was able to see um, David Grisman on several occasions. Mm -hmm. And I knew of him through him playing with the Grateful Dead, being the yeah. the mandolin were you, were you player. A, were you a little deadhead at that point? I I had those uh, kind of acoustic-y ones. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I liked their first record, but then I remember buying Working Man's Dead. American really Beauty like and that. all that. Yeah. And then American Beauty, kind of a companion one, and that had David Grisman playing on it. Right. And uh, I remember seeing in the, the Sunday Chronicle, the San Francisco paper, that there was a list listing for a club called The Boarding House. And, you know, because I'd always check it out every Sunday, see what music is playing down there, even though I was still in high school. Sometimes I'd have an opportunity to to travel there and hear some music, and it said, "Old and in the way, Jerry Garcia's bluegrass band." And I'd like, "What?" So yeah. I ended up going to see that a couple times. And, and so that was Vassar, Jerry, uh, Peter Rowan, Peter Rowan, and, and David, um, Grisman, David Grisman, and John yeah. Kahn on bass. Amazing. Yeah. So what was that scene like? Like, was it filled with crazy deadheads, or was it kind of like under the radar? I think it was probably, you know, Jerry Garcia was a big draw, so it was probably Deadheads okay. and Bluegrassers, too. Yeah, because that's, that's a legit band, too. Yeah. It wasn't just people, like, dabbling in bluegrass. No, like, no. Jerry had gone deep, and then those other guys were, like, seasoned pros. And... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess they were a band for a while before they asked Vassar to play with them at all. And then oh, they, yeah. they, I think they had to get their nerve up to call him up <laughs> to see if he would play, because he's, like, you know, played with Monroe in the 50s. Yeah. What was the bluegrass scene like? Where you grew up in the Bay Area? Uh, well, north of there in Ukiah, California. Um, Ukiah, okay. About two hours north of San Francisco. Was there any music going on there for no. you as a kid? Well, there was music, but it was not bluegrass. Um, there was actually a couple um, musicians. Robin Ford. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he was a senior in high school when I was a freshman in high school. Okay. And uh, so he was probably already gigging and stuff. Yeah, right? Oh yeah. Like well, the, he was the the high school band you know they were like a rock band was had robin ford and these other guys <laughs> and crazy. my next door neighbor and they weren't really a rock band they were like a awesomely great chicago blues band yeah and so i remember um i was like 12 or 13 and they were rehearsing on my neighbor's patio and i went over to listen and they played freddie king's hideaway mm -hmm. and i couldn't believe it because it was like my brother my older brother Steve had the John Mayall and the Blues Breakers record where Eric uh, Clapton played it. And I recognized it and I thought, wow, this is that tune, but he sounds just as good or better than the record. So, <laughs> And that that was a real, um, I, I count that as a key moment in my life where I was turned on to music and oh. that kind of, everything was about music after that. Amazing. Yeah. Little little mini Robin Ford blowing your mind. Yeah, well, he was great then, and and the rest of the band was great too. The Poplin brothers, Stan and uh, oh, yeah. Steve Poplin. Yeah, and um, and and my my neighbor who I grew up with, you know, was a was the singer. And then you know we just every you know Robin graduated and we'd all just 
Because he was playing with like George Harrison when he was like, well, yeah, it right was, around it was that like age. Our, he was our local hero because you know he went from, you know, his own band with his brothers, the Charles Ford band, yep. to uh, Jimmy Witherspoon, or right, I guess to Char- with... Charlie Musselwhite, then Jimmy Witherspoon, then Joni Mitchell, then George Harrison, then Miles Davis. It's like, man, dude's got it figured got, out. He's checked all the boxes. Yeah, yeah, he did all that stuff so young. It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So that was Ukiah. What else was going on there? Uh, well, was there any acoustic music going on? Not well. The acoustic music that I was exposed to was my older brother, okay. and and a, a good friend of his named Gary Whitaker. So they sang uh, a lot of songs together. You know, some Burrito Brother songs. I think yeah. they used to sing Sin City and Hickory Wind, and I think they sang My Uncle too. And they and I was so into that. That's just what I aspired to do. So. I, I got this mandolin and I, I kind of developed some technique, some kind of unorthodox technique, but I started playing with them. And that was that was the scene. So how, how did you come up, come up with the mandolin? Like, where does that even come from? Um, well, I I'd been, I knew what it was. I knew what a mandolin was. From hearing like Burrito Brothers records well, and that, stuff. The Burrito Brothers, yeah, Chris Hillman would play a little bit on there and, yeah. and David Grisman, but also TV seeing the Dillards on okay. the Andy Griffith show. Oh. And the local PBS station uh, would have bluegrass from time to time. You know, they'd air like a folk festival. And I saw, I remember seeing Bill Monroe on there. Yeah. And then a local uh, affiliate had a band called the Phantoms of the Opry and- <laughs> I ended up playing music with a bunch of those guys, Paul Shalaski, and Pat Enright was in that band too. Uh-huh. And um, so I, I knew about mandolins. And um, when I was in high school, I went camping on the Mendocino Coast with a bunch of high school friends. And I played guitar at that point. You know, I could play, you know. Oh, you did? So Yeah, you, you yeah got, I, I did play guitar. Okay. And I, I had, um, I guess I took lessons on guitar when I was nine, but it never really took. But we still had the guitar, and my brother um, kind of appropriated it and learned stuff from his friends. So consequently, he came back and showed me some 12-bar blues and Creedence songs, and, and I was just— Oh, that's this funny. Was, I always pictured you as like a young bluegrass upstart, but you were just like a little rock kid. Well— Like everybody that's, else. That's what everybody hears, you know, so— um, so I, I learned that stuff, and it was like this is post-hearing Robin Ford, so everything was about bluegrass music, so I just tried to play as much as I could. And yeah. I remember, you know, you, you know the e, open E7th chord, and then my brother showed me he was playing a C7th shape on the 5th fret, and it was the same chord. And it's like it blew my mind. I couldn't believe, how, how is this possible? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I was playing some acoustic guitar, but it was just kind of strummy stuff. Yeah. And then went camping with my friends on the Mendocino Coast, and we and um, there were some hippies camped pretty close to us. So we went down to visit the hippies, <laughs> and this guy was play, playing. I think he was playing a Rolling Stones song, like "You Can't Always Get What You Want," something like it. That's my memory of him. Uh-huh. But laying in the sand was this mandolin. Yeah, and and I picked up the mandolin, and it was tuned to an open chord. Oh, like like a oh, like a. I, it was probably an open G. Like an actual chord. chord. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yes, like, you know, so like a, like a banjo would be tuned open. Yeah. And I, I was familiar with open E and D tuning from, you know, some blues stuff I, I had learned. Okay. So I started playing the bass interval. was like... So I thought, man, a lot of mileage I can already that. play this with this instrument. So, yeah. so that I just kind of, you know, kept that in mind. And then a family friend... Um, 
had a mandolin and he let, let me borrow it and I just tuned it to an open E chord. Did you not know how to tune a mandolin? I think I, I think there was a pitch pipe and I thought, G-D-A-E, forget it. I'm going to tune it to the open E. Yeah. And then didn't so use how long did So how long did you keep that up for? Uh, probably a year or two. And I think I realized maybe open G is better than open E because at least two of the strings are going to be... <laughs> Uh, proper. Yeah. And then I got, I had, uh, I got an F2 mandolin, old Gibson, that was nice. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I've got this serious mandolin. I should probably get serious about the tuning and okay. started using a pick and tuned it. And that, around that time I had uh, graduated from high school and was going to a community college in Chico, California. And I'd go to class, you know, and do the work, but most of my time was spent Learning the mandolin, off. learning fiddle tunes, and yeah. and listening to bluegrass, and then, you know. So at that point, you you were tuning it yeah, properly. Yeah. So okay. I was eighteen or nineteen at that time. And were you taking lessons ever? No. Okay. You just were all completely self taught. No, I took lessons on guitar a little bit, but but all the mandolin stuff was just from listening to records and. So what sl- were the what were the big like you mentioned Sam Bush, but like um like the Hartford stuff or what? Yeah, kind of- I I liked Byron Berlin a lot, like that band Country Gazette. I thought uh-huh. they were a really great band, yeah. and Byron, you know, he's mainly known as a fiddle player. He's a great fiddle player. Yeah. And I still loved all the other instruments, but he also played mandolin. So I learned some of his okay. stuff. And then I remember f- seeing Mike Aldridge's first record um, with the Dobro on the cover. Yeah. And there were some great players on there. And I learned there was a, a Doyle Lawson solo I learned. So there's a few key solos I would learn and and apply different phrases and licks to other songs. And I, you know, I figured out how you could kind of mix and match phrases and, and, yeah. and you know, this lick works in G on this tune, it should work in G on this other tune right. and then move it around a little bit because the new tuning, you know, in fifths is so great for transposing. Right. So you're in Chico at college. Did you have any playing opportunities there? A little bit. Like you know, what, what was going on? With not, that? not a lot. It was Where mostly just Chico? playing. Chico is in the Sacramento Valley, north of Sacramento. So it's inland. Yeah. And, yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, Yeah. And I think I was mostly just playing with my own, and then I'd go home and play with friends and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember having a few encounters with some other acoustic players, but um, that was pretty much it. And then, did you get good pretty quickly? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because that's all I did. I, you know, that's all I was interested. <laughs> so I, I always say I went to college to learn how to play mandolin, even though they didn't teach mandolin. <laughs> And, and that's all I was interested in. So, uh-huh. so learning these solos and playing with my brother and Gary, the friends, and my next door neighbor and my friend Kevin Johnson, and we, we had a bluegrass band for a while. Okay, and so at, by this point, guitar had just sort of vanished. From I your life. still played. No, because I still love Norman Blake, so I, okay. I learned a bunch of those tunes off his first record. Yeah, and some Doc Watson stuff. Yeah. So, um, like finger picky Doc Watson or flat picky Doc Watson? More flat picky. Okay. Although I did play a little bit of that John Hurt stuff. Yeah. And I, I, that was the the guitar lessons I had were um, fingerstyle guitar playing. Oh, okay. It was the same guy, my friend Gary, who he showed me how to play, you know, Freight Train and some, some classics. John Hurt tunes. And so yeah. that, that just stuck. Yeah. Yeah, um, that stuff sticks, man. Yeah, it's great. It's, yeah. I, I still love that. And uh, I was mostly, I think, playing with family and friends, uh, moved around a lot. And then I ended up in Eugene, Oregon. For college? I well, was, My brother lived there, and it just seemed like a thing to do at the time. You know, I was kind of, you know, I was young, didn't have any. 
I, but I, I kept going to school. And, um, to do what, gr- what, what were you taking at school? It was different every semester. <laughs> <laughs> For a while it was music. Oh, yeah? But then I, you know, like, it was all about written music, and it was mostly former band students, right. and I just couldn't relate to it. Yeah. I was a horticulture major for a while. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, but I just took stuff that I was interested in ended up with a two-year degree. Yeah. Um, but the last school I went to was in Eugene yeah. in Community College, but there was a great bluegrass scene there. Um, yeah, Eugene's sort of like a crazy—I spent a lot of time in Eugene, too, and yeah. like there's a, there's a good club scene there, or there was like in the 90s when I was there a lot, and— and kind of a, like it drew musicians there. Yeah. Well, it's a college town. Yeah. Yeah. And so I played some with my brother. And, the, and at that point, I was really gotten into, uh, I'd heard the David Grisman Quintet okay. and Jethro Burns. And I was really open to that stuff as well yeah. as bluegrass. But there was a, a local band called um, Good and Country. And a guy named David Birch had been asked to join this band, The Good Old Persons, that I'd mentioned earlier. And this is Kathy Callick's band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he moved to the Bay Area, and I guess the band was in a state of flux, and they ended up needing a mandolin player. And he says, I know a mandolin player, so I got the call. And yeah. I had been aware of that band for, for years. Well, not that many years. because they, they were an all-female band, They right? started out as an all-female band, and that's that's the band I saw, and they were okay. great, you know. Yeah. And they had this blend of bluegrass and old time. Yeah. And then they'd... It'd, the sound of the band had changed. Sally Van Meter joined playing dobro and nice. banjo. And uh, I remember seeing a version of the band with Kathy Callick and Lori Lewis, Sally Van Meter, Paul Shalasky, mm-hmm. and, and a guy named Harry Legion playing guitar and mandolin at a festival when I was still living in Oregon. I thought, man, that's, that's a great band. I wish I had Harry's job because he played mandolin and guitar. Okay. And, and then six months later, <laughs> I was in the band. So, so David, about, David recommended them to me, and I went down and audition, and that's that was my first real professional. Because that's not easy to just like go from sitting around playing in your room learning Grisman record licks to like playing in a band and knowing how to do that. Like, yeah, what was that process like? Well, I had played with friends, so I was used to playing with people, okay. but not so much on not playing gigs as much as just having fun with it. Yeah. But the main thing for me was learning how to play in different keys because I, you know. I only, I'm just playing in G and C and D and A, you know, the keys that are come natural to playing the mandolin. Yeah. But the, these were great singers who sang in B, B flat and B and, flat. And, yeah. uh, you know, that was kind of the bluegrass thing. So I had to figure out how to play uh, in those keys. So uh-huh. that was one thing. And, uh, and then most of my playing was more, you know, eighth note oriented, like fiddle tunes. Yeah. So I had to learn how to play on songs that didn't just sound like a, a lot of notes. Right. But so, you know, I learned how to play double stops and worked on tremolo and yeah. that kind of thing. So it was great learning experience. Did anyone, was anyone in the band sort of a guiding light in that way? Or did they just sort of leave you alone to figure out your Mostly, own? Mostly, you know, they just accepted that I, cause I, you know, I, I had some pretty good ability. It just wasn't completely well-rounded for the yeah. whole bluegrass, um, you know, mandolin job description. Right. And that's what I learned to do. And and Paul was a great mandolin player. And uh, he was, but he was pretty much a traditionalist. And I'd say, well, what do you think? And he, I couldn't really relate to his feedback. So I just <laughs> kept, kept playing. And yeah. Um, what about, what about the, the, um, like the amplification part of playing live, like playing live gigs? Was that ever a struggle? Like, 
being able to hear you. I guess mandolin's a little different than like guitar or th- or, or things like that. That I yeah, was... it cuts pretty pretty yeah. easily. And I remember the the weekly gigs we had. We were all sharing mics. You know, there yeah. might be a couple vocal mics, and then I'd probably play in the same mic as the dobro or the banjo, okay. and then a fiddle mic. So it was maybe five inputs altogether. Yeah. But you know, the mandolin. You, you, if you stick a Sure Fifty Seven right up to that treble F hole, you can get some good you get volume. Some serious volume. Yeah. And you get a scratched up mandolin, but uh, yeah. So tell me about that band a little bit. Like, were you immediately to like they were established to a certain yeah. degree, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. What was the touring situation for you? Um, it was mostly you know we had regular gigs. We had a pizza parlor, and then we played at this famous club in San Francisco called Paul's Saloon. Okay. There's so many people I've talked to that the pizza parlor was like the gig, yeah. especially in California. Well, That's it like was, a... it was, it paid pretty good and you got to order a pizza and live off that for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Paul Saloon was but great. But people would like, tell me about what that was. Like it was literally a pizza restaurant that people would go to. Hear yeah, it, was a, it, was, it was the Red Vest Pizza Parlor. There were more than just this one, but that was the main one I played in. And it was in El Cerrito, just north of Berkeley. Okay. And it was just a family place, and it was really chaotic. Were the owners into bluegrass or something? Or I what guess was... they thought it was a draw. Okay. Because, <laughs> then... like, the Nickel Creek guys, like, they started at a pizza parlor. Yeah. And, like, it's crazy how many well, people started at pizza parlors. It could be, depending on the night. I think we mostly played Thursday, so it wasn't too crazy. Okay. But, you know, you'd have to get them to shut the jukebox off, and yeah. it could be pretty noisy. But we had fans. I mean, people would come yeah. back every week and really were, were loyal fans to us. So it was mm-hmm. it was a nice scene. It was a nice social scene. I met a lot of folks there. Yeah. And um, But Paul Saloon was like really a, a legit a real bluegrass venue. club, even yeah. though it had its drawbacks. Um, like what? The drawbacks? Yeah. The stage was placed facing the women's bathroom so that there was like one row of seats right in front of the stage and then on the left was one room and on the right was the other room so it was just okay hard to direct your attention yep not that i really there's a place called ludlow's garage didn't matter to me have you played in ludlow's garage in Um, uh cincinnati and it's like you're aimed into the middle of nowhere and then there's an audience to your left and an audience to your right it sounds sounds about right okay and and Paul, who um, who owned it, was kind of a you know a hard guy to to work with for sometimes. Oh yeah, like but it, it was a bluegrass club. It was a bluegrass club, and he yeah. lived in an apartment upstairs. And if you know the band took longer than twenty minutes for a break, he'd call downtown and tell the bartenders to make really? us go back. Oh wow! But then he also said, you know, if there's more people in the band that are in the audience, you can wrap up and go home. <laughs> so that was fair. <laughs> It's a good rule. But it was, you know, it was a weekly, they had bluegrass every night of the week and it was local bands, but then touring bands came through and there was, I didn't see this group, but there was a big hubbub when J.D. Crow and the New South stopped by and played a gig on the way to Japan. And that's like Tony Rice era. Yeah. Yeah. um, Ricky Skaggs, Tony Rice. Jerry Douglas. Jerry Douglas. Yeah. And then I was there. Were um, you aware of that breed of like that generation of, I guess you were, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, because I joined that band, The Good Old Persons, in 1978. Okay. And stayed with them for many years after that. Yeah. And then I saw an early version of the Nashville Bluegrass Band there, too. So okay. you'd see some touring bands come through. 
At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best-feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. Their consoles and preamps were behind the sound of so many great American studios of the 1960s through to today. Spectre 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. Was there ever any talk of you joining other bands or anything, or was that not really a thing that was well, happening? Well, I... I uh... Tony Rice was in the David Griffin Quintet and they parted ways and he decided he was going to put together a band and he had heard me and I want to audition. So I went and how, had, how had he heard you? He, he came to the pizza parlor. Really? <laughs> no, he did. I actually, I remember seeing him at that pizza parlor. And, oh my God. Because he was, he was a restless guy, you know, because he was used to playing. Did he live in California at that point? He did. He did. He, he, okay. moved, he moved from Kentucky. He quit J.D. Crow, moved to, to California to join David's band. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah. And I think I met him at Paul's saloon. Okay. So he had heard me play a bit, Yeah. but then, you know, I guess he told, you know, people he was putting together a band and maybe people recommended me because I, you know, I liked, I played some jazz. I like Jethro Burns. I love David Grisman's music. So, um, that was a band I ended up joining and I was in the good old persons and the Tony Rice unit at oh, the same were. time. Yeah. So tell because me neither, about that. neither one played too much. They didn't? Tony wasn't like fully well, touring? No, not really, because, you know, he was just getting this, it, He what the music he wanted to play was similar to David Grisman's, no singing, Yeah, but it was even more leaning towards jazz in the improvisation, yeah. not so arranged, but just yeah. a lot of soloing. And so, he, so was, was he feeling confined in the Grisman band or was he just wanting to do something different? I think, I, I think he just, that whole experience had run its course mm -hmm. for him. I don't know that he was confined. I, I, you know, I think they were both pretty strong personalities and yeah. could only last for so long. So what was your first interaction with Tony? So I heard someone says, Tony Rice is trying to get a hold of you. 
<laughs> and I, he was, you know, that was shocking. <laughs> and uh, so I called him up and he says, you know, I'm going to be putting together a band. I want to see if you wanted to audition. So went over to his house and met him and he kind of described, you know, how he saw the band working and gave me some LPs of because he had recorded some of this music, his his original instrumental tunes yeah. and some charts. And I went away for a couple of weeks and learned a few of them. How were you tr- figuring out from a chart how to play stuff? Because were you reading music? Uh, mainly the chord changes. Okay. Did that stuff, like, did you know what the chords were that he was oh, talking yeah, about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Had, had so you had a, some theoretical knowledge yeah, at this point. Yeah, I, I, a lot of theory I had sort of sort of sussed out on my own. Okay. But then I remember when I was in Eugene, I took a jazz theory class. Okay. And it was really great because it was just the basic understanding of how chords are constructed. Yeah. And so there's major chords, minor chords, and dominant chords. And then there's altered or extended versions of all those chords. Yeah. And that all that all made sense to me. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like math. Yeah. Not that I was good at math, but um, I, I didn't read... I, I mean, I knew how notation worked, but I never sight read. Yeah. But I knew the theory involved okay. with music, so so I had. So were Tony's tunes like when you say he had charts? Were they were just chord charts, or did he? Uh, I think the melody was there too. Okay. I think Daryl Anger had put together a bunch of those charts. Oh, okay. And uh, but the the changes were there. Yeah. And um, and then I just used my ear to get the melody as best I could. But a lot of it was just mostly improvising. So right. If I um, so I so it was to, so it was. Tony Wyatt, right? Well, Wyatt was later. Okay. So, so, so what was the lineup when well, you joined? Well, it was always going to be Todd Phillips on bass, uh-huh. but Todd Phillips was um, away from the scene for about a year. Uh, he lived in Washington State and just you know was decompressing from the whole Grisman experience. I think. Oh, really? So I went. Well, this is kind of this will fall into place. Um, I went. Back after learning a couple tunes and getting familiar with the music, and we played, and he was he was was so great. I mean, I I just remember this feeling. He said, "I had no idea you could play like that." Well, that's it. I'm not looking for another mandolin player. Which, Tony said that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Man. It was like I just felt so. That's awesome. insane. Yeah, and also nervous because it's still Tony Rice, and I gotta I'm gonna be in a band with this guy. And where did this happen? In uh, the in Marin County. So you just went down there to audition? Well, and... I, I lived in San Anselmo at the at the time, okay. which is near San Rafael. Okay. And Tony was just, you know, maybe a 15-minute drive away. Oh. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So we, it was it was real. I was, I mean, if I hadn't been in, in that Bay Area bluegrass scene, this would have never happened probably. Right. Um, so, so what about the, like, the jazz changes improvising? How did you, how were you wrapping your head around that stuff at this point in your uh, well, development? Well, I... Liked, and I mean, a lot of his music was pretty much the improvis- improvisation was over one key center. So yeah. it wasn't like a jazz standard that travels through different key centers where you're in E flat and then you're in B flat for a minute, or then you're back in the key of C. Yeah. You know how those, yeah. I don't, that's too abstract, but a lot of it was just pretty much one mode. So that wasn't too challenging. Uh, but then we did do some tunes that had a bit more movement in harmonically. Yeah. And I was big on arpeggios and arpeggiating the, you know, the chord tones. Mm-hmm. So my solos would kind of start there, yeah. leading into scale tones and leading into, I knew some altered stuff. And I had learned some more jazz theory from a good friend of mine named David Balakrishnan, who's a jazz violinist who was in the scene uh, at that time. And he 
still leads the Turtle Island String Quartet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he showed me some patterns and licks. And, and I think Tony really liked the fact that I you could hear that I was playing to the changes. Yeah. And also, I knew enough about the chords that I could voice the key notes of a chord, even, you know, mandolin's only four notes possible. But he really, instead of just kind of a... That sort of sound I could get... Um, Let's see. What's a good example? So, you know, that kind of a chord. Yeah. I forget what that is now, but... but it's a sharp nine in there yeah. and something else. Yeah. So he... I think that was one thing he... That he heard about my own playing that he had missed in, with some other players he had played with. Okay. So did that band start playing right away or did you have a period of time where you were just like jamming and getting it all figured out? Yeah, that's... that. Well, Todd was away, so he hired me to play mandolin and then... No one else was around. He didn't have a fiddle player yet, but yeah. he eventually hired Fred Carpenter, uh-huh. and uh, and then Todd came back, and we had three gigs, and and then we kept. I mean, that was in December, and then in I think in January of the so it's December of eighty, and then January of eighty one, we went into the studio, okay. and he had a bunch of new material. And so there's that album that I've heard you talk about called Still Inside. Yeah, I can't find it anywhere. Like well, I've never been able to find it. What's the deal with that? If you can find a used copy on LP, but most of the tunes were uh, compiled with an album called Mar West. Okay. And the CD is called Devlin. Oh, so yeah. that's that. Yeah. Devlin is... Is, is got most of... Is still most inside. Most of, of Still Inside and I think most of Mar West. Okay. And Mar West was a, the previous record that I... That was one of the albums he had loaned me to go and learn, learn tunes. tunes. And, and then Sam Bush is on most of that. And I think yeah. Mike Marshall on a couple cuts. So would you go in and like actually learn the the heads as Sam had played them or were you just kind of like using them as a rough outline? Um, he, you know, I think my memory is that either Tony played the melodies or Richard Green played the melodies because Richard could sight read. Okay. And Sam played the melodies on some of it. I think there's a co-write on one of those. So Sam was mostly playing rhythm and then soloing. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of, I did learn a lot of the heads. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's this one tune called Gasology and it's just ridiculously hard to play and i still practice it <laughs> really you know? yeah because it's such a good you know finger buster little yeah. finger exercise okay well, but yeah cool. I, I did learn a lot of the melodies and then there was new material so he wanted me to play the melodies on some of it yeah tell me about those recording sessions like were you guys just sort of setting up in the studio uh acoustically all together in the same room or was there separation or um, how, what did what we, was we the were, approach we were in the same room but there were baffles Okay. So we had, we'd see each other and yeah. hear each other to a certain extent, yeah. but there is isol- enough isolation, but there is enough connection also. Okay. And would you go and like redo a solo if you didn't like it or were you not able to do that? I, you know, Tony was big on editing. Oh yeah? Yeah. So, so a lot of times it would just be maybe a whole solo from one take might go to a better master okay. take, Yeah. that kind of thing, or parts of, parts of solos. Yeah. Um, I did, I remember overdubbing a couple times on the second record I played on, mm-hmm. but mostly it was playing live. Yeah. Headphones and stuff or just in the room? Uh, headphones, yeah. Were you playing to Maybe. a click? No. Well, one tune we played to a click Yeah. on uh, a tune called Mobius Mambo. Oh yeah, I know that tune. Um, because it had this weird stop that was just... I don't, maybe it probably wasn't an issue for Todd and Tony, but maybe the rest of us were having a hard time. But so that was, was just, the only one. And okay. the click was like 
relentless. Yes, it is. At that time, it was I call just, it the it was, enemy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's good clicks you can get now. You can click the, oh, click just on the, the tone of it, but just the tone of it was, yeah. and it was loud. But as if you don't, you listen back, and it doesn't sound mechanical. How do you actually? In those days, how did you get a click? Did you have to record like a metronome analog? Uh, like, I can't how did remember. you do it? I, you know, I don't know. I was just looking at the there wasn't, microphone, hoping for the best. Like, it's such a second nature now if you're going to use a click. But like in those days, I feel like you would have had to have recorded a metronome or something. I, it was. It wasn't a. I don't remember. It was. It was a tone that was like very insistent, almost like a woodblock, but more metallic sounding. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, it was. It was loud. <laughs> But the, you know, the track is, sounds great, I think, you know, yeah. so anyway. Oh. Um. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And did that process change at all through... So so the next record is called Bywaters, right? Is Backwaters. Backwaters. Yeah. Is that... Was it the same kind of process, same studio, same... Yeah, although Wyatt thing? had come in to play mm-hmm. rhythm on some of that stuff. So tell me about that whole dynamic. Uh, I guess... Well, this is a funny thing. When I first joined the band, there were some ballads, some really beautiful ballads he wrote. And he knew Tony I played, or Wyatt? Uh, Tony. Tony. Had, yeah. Tony, yeah. And uh, he knew I played guitar. So he said, well, what do you think about trying to play guitar, rhythm guitar on some of these? And he showed me the voicings. And there are a few gigs early on where I'm on stage playing guitar with oh. Tony Rice. And not only that, it was, he had a, I don't know if he played my old D18 on those, but it was you know, since I wasn't really a guitar player, it was his old D18. Oh, you know, Clarence's old guitar like was that was guitar. easier for me to play, so he let me play that guitar. Oh, shit. I remember thinking, oh, "This is so bogus. What am I doing with this guitar?" <laughs> but that didn't last too long. But I think that's where the idea of Wyatt coming in, where you know Tony could have the nice full voicings okay. on the, on some of those songs. Yeah, and Wyatt was you know sixteen, and he could oh play. My God, he, really, he played great lead, but it was more in like Clarence bluegrass stuff, Clarence White style yeah. bluegrass. Yeah. Were the roles clearly defined though? Like, I mean, it was Tony's band. He was yeah. the, and Wyatt was strictly like a rhythm guy yeah. essentially. Okay. Yeah. And I think they'd probably both play rhythm, you know, when someone else was soloing. Yeah. Um, and then Fred was still in the band, but Richard Green played on a few of the cuts mm-hmm. and then they both played on, on, on Green Dolphin Street, this jazz standard. Yeah. There's some, st- and, and you guys do uh, my favorite things is on yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, so, th- so you were definitely like exploring the, the jazz standard world. Well, yeah. And, and Tony, that's all he listened to for the most part, you uh-huh. know, he this really intense, um, you know, piano trios, um, 
you know, he loved Oscar Peterson and, oh, yeah. and the both he and Todd were really into Niels Henning Orsted Pedersen, the bass player. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And you'd go over to his house and he had this fantastic sound system and you'd sit on the couch and listen and just listen. And it's like this heavy, intense music with out of these giant speakers were just sonically just, just amazing. What was the hang like with Tony? Like, do, do you have fond, generally fond recollections yeah. of the touring with that band? Like, was it a... He's a great guy. He's really yeah. funny. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, he's an intense guy too. So it's kind of like his world that okay. I just entered. Yeah. I didn't feel like there was maybe a lot of give and take, but I liked him as a person, you know, he's yeah. cool to hang out with. He'd get, you know, a little grumpy, you know, if things weren't in tune, you know, uh-huh. um, but generally he was just very positive yeah. towards yeah. me and my playing. And, and I, he, you know, we stayed after he moved East, we stayed somewhat in contact, but we, you know, if we'd see each other, he's just super happy to see me. Yeah. And he cites, he cited, Backwaters as being his favorite recording. That's a great record. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was happy to be part of it. And I'm proud that he thinks, you know, one of the recordings that I played on of all his recordings, you know. Interesting. What did he, what do you think he loved about it? Just the, the way it sounded or like the, I think the way it sounded, I think he liked his own playing. I think Mm -hmm. he liked the material. Yeah. Um, I think just the whole, whole package. to my recollection, didn't really do that again, where he was pulling out like actual jazz standards. No, I don't think so. He because it he his he went to like hardcore bluegrass after that, kind of or more folk. Yeah, hard folk bluegrass. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, and and then later on, you know, he'd play he'd book gigs and they'd still play my favorite things and yeah. and some of his tunes like Devil in Her Manzanita. But that was the end of that area where it was all instrumental performance because right. you know I remember. The whole time, every gig, you know, someone would want him to sing, and he just wasn't into it for Why? that context. He didn't. He, he thought, you know, he's if he's not singing in a bluegrass band or with other singers, I guess he didn't want to do it. He, he huh. mainly wanted to play these original instrumentals or covers that he chose yeah. in an improvising unit. Okay. Was there ever any blowback on that? Like, would you show up at a gig and the promoter the you know, like it wasn't what people were expecting no, or something. No, I don't think so. Okay. It was just a Tony no, Rice unit. No, it was just, he, that's, it yeah. was presented as the Tony Rice unit playing yeah. instrumental music. And do you remember some of those gigs being like really spectacularly good musically for you? Yeah. We'd play, you know, every six months or so at the Great American Music Hall. Yeah. And the very first time I played there, it was like, it was pretty intense, you know, getting ready to play because that's where I had heard so much great music, you know. Yeah. That's where I heard Byron Berline and Country Gazette and then heard Joe Pass play there and oh, wow. all, all these greats and Stefan Grappelli. Yeah. So it was the the venue for acoustic music. Right. And the Grisman Quintet, I saw them many times and I was like, okay, here I am. I'm on the stage now and I'm playing with this guy. Yeah. And But somehow I just was able to get through it because playing with Todd and Tony and Fred – it was just we had rehearsed so much, and those yeah. guys were such good musicians that you they you just sounded, you couldn't help but sound better than you ever have sounded. Yeah, I guess I think I said that correctly. Are there any live records made in those days? No, there's a YouTube of uh, a gig we did at McCabe's. Okay. Ironically, I don't think that was our best show, but that's out there on YouTube. Like a good quality. I think or it's is it okay. just like some dude with I don't, I'm not sure that the balance, the guitar is loud. <laughs> I can't hear the mandolin so much, but. <laughs> uh, 
And you guys were, were all like, what was the live amplification situation? Was Just, it all into one mic? No, we individual, individual mics, but, yeah. but you know, this Tony liked to set up close to each other, which okay. is, I, that's a, I still prefer that yeah. myself, you know, being as close to the other musicians as possible. Yeah. And, you know, there were monitors, but, and he liked to use a, a AKG 451. Yeah. Which you know, if the sound man wasn't good, could it be problematic. But, yeah. but, um, and then I can't remember what the rest of us used. But um, probably like fifty sevens and things like that. Or? No, they were they were, they were condenser mics. He okay. he encouraged me to buy the Sony mic that was. He thought it was a good mic for the money. Okay, I just thought it sounded a bit bright. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, well, bright can be good in a live situation where I you guess. need to cut. I, I guess. It's just I, I didn't like the sound coming back in the monitors usually. So you would get mo- like, wasn't that ever problematic having monitors coming back at you with mi- live mics everywhere? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you had your fair share of like, yeah. Well, we'd, have, we'd sound with... check and and but the the uh, sound man was gar- and he, I think so, you know a lot of times Tony would hire a sound man too. Uh-huh. You'd have I think that, more yeah, actually I think as often as not I, the first gigs Bill Wolf was was uh, doing live sound for us yeah those first few gigs yeah and then other folks after that wow do you still do that with monitors and stuff no or? I try to not use monitors yeah um, in the my my bluegrass band the Jaybirds we've done a few different things like from one microphone yeah to on instrument DPA yeah. wireless mics, but and then we 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 have a, a in ear rig, but I I could never warm up to that. So oh, really, so that's part of why I like to st- be close to each other because if the room is you know adequate, yeah, I don't, you don't need monitors. What about outdoor though? Yeah, and then there's, <laughs> now lately, like what do you do if you if Jaybirds now are going to play at a festival? What do you do? We add we've added wedges a little bit, okay, a little bit in the wedges. But I this festival I just played it was a, with a different band, but essentially the same lineup playing in the mics, and we had monitors, but I could hear the house sound so good that you didn't need them. Yeah, I mean, well, the, I think the little bit of monitor helped just for the direct, yeah. you know, response. Yeah. But I the tonally what I was he- hearing back, I like hearing the mains. Uh-huh. So if we set up close together, I'm in the middle pretty much or close to the middle so I can hear everything pretty right. well acoustically. Yeah. And I guess like in, in with Tony, like he he projects so well that that's yeah. what that's what I always found amazing about, you know, people like Brian Sutton and Critter and stuff is like when I'm in a room hearing them play, like the projection they can get out of an acoustic guitar is yeah. insane to me. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I can't do that. It's, it's, it's crazy it's how they trick. can. Yeah, it is. Or not a trick. It's just a skill. It's I a guess skill. You, if you, yeah. but it comes from playing bluegrass as, yeah. at a young age, I guess. Yeah. If you guys were all on stage playing in, into individual mics, would you have to move up and down the stage to mix yourself or would that be the job you, you, of the sound man? Or? Oh no, we'd work the mics. Okay. Yeah. Just like a bluegrass band. Would. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. always been yeah. a, a skill that you need to. Yeah, I mean, it was master. basically so mandolin, guitar, and fiddle. Yeah, and then I, I I can't remember what Todd would do at the bass if he'd use a an amp. Oh yeah, or not? I I I, I don't recall what was the bass setup at the time. I, or he might have had a he might have had a little like a clip little, on mic or something. Yeah, I mean, or a pickup in a mic. But you guys never used pickups, right? No, and no one else in the band used pickups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be definitely not yeah. part of the yeah. the scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's really changed now. It seems like a lot of the current bluegrass crop, I guess also because it's like getting really popular again right now. And like 
they're playing bigger venues and yeah and yeah you know, people all, want volume yeah yeah and and pro and and the, i mean the pickups have improved too they still sound weird to me though oh yeah yeah i, I never <laughs> use them but i did when we um the jaybirds started using these nice dpa i can't remember the mod that's not the common one with the 4099 or 4066 with the little gooseneck oh, it yeah. wasn't those it was actually a stage a microphone made for actors oh. so it was a lavalier mic uh -huh. and it was a little tiny omni mic that we most of us used and i you would clip it to your mandolin wirelessly yeah oh. and i'd um hook it on the back on the tone guard which is oh, this yeah. device that a lot of mandolin players use and run the wire underneath the front of the pick guard so it would extend just uh over the treble f hole in the perfect spot okay and it was a little dark but what we would do is when we soloed we'd step to the center with a single vocal mic augment it with and it would the... brighten it up a little bit right so it was kind of ideal and so if i have to play in a loud situation like at a folk festival or sometimes i i tour with tony Furtado, yeah who can be pretty loud yeah. Yeah. i use that and it's it's plenty of volume okay so far cool that's handy yeah. and it sounds really good yeah and plus I, it's wireless I would. It doesn't need to be wireless, but I kind of like it not having to deal with. Yeah, no doubt. Dragging a cord totally. around. Yeah. So what happened with that incarnation of the Tony Rice unit? That just came to an end eventually, or did you have to yeah, split? Um, or I what? think he got frustrated because you know people weren't. You know they still wanted to hear him sing, or they wanted to hear this or that. And yeah. His marriage was ending at that time, oh, yeah. and uh, the the last gig we played was at the Winfield Folk Festival. And, you know, that's 30, no, 40 years ago oh. this past weekend. Whoa. Because it was the third weekend of September, and it was 1983. Yeah. And that version of the band, uh, Fred was no longer with the group, but Wyatt was was on, on board. So it was yeah. Tony, Wyatt, Todd Phillips, and myself. The Backwaters. Yeah. Lineup. Yeah. yeah. With, without fiddle, though. Yeah. Yeah. And did you know that that was the last one, or? Uh, no, because, okay. but it was just like, it kind of the writing was on the wall that yeah it just you know and then you know he made i think the wise decision to move back east and start singing but the material was not straight up bluegrass all the time because it yeah. was that same lineup two guitars because wyatt was still in the group and then jimmy Gridrow was the mandolin player and he was a great tenor singer okay and then mark schatz uh came yeah. on board because Todd wasn't going to move back east, I guess. Yeah. And uh, that was a great band. I remember seeing them and really good singing, great yeah. material. You know, a lot of those Gordon Lightfoot songs. Yeah, and a lot of Lightfoot. Some of right. the Manzanita material. So so he got his career just, you know, I think. What was, the, what was his career trajectory when you played with him? Like now we think of him as like this larger than life creature of amazing proportions but like was it kind of a grind and or were you no, playing no, like people big, were into him i mean he you know was, everybody loved his playing so this is early 80s and he was like as far as like that kind of yeah, music goes, he, had, he was right you know he'd been in every all the bluegrassers knew of him from playing with jd crow yeah i mean that was they were considered the best bluegrass band ever for yeah. a long time yeah and then he went from that to playing with david grisman and that that brought him all these other fans right. you know from this i guess deadheads and yeah. you know jazz fans and and uh, i mean he was no denying he's a fantastic musician i mean both yeah. rhythmically and his lead playing yeah. so he was he was a big deal okay and he was playing on emmy lou harris records and things yeah. like that yeah 
So tell me about your move up to Canada. Like I, you know, I, I grew up in Vancouver and yeah. I was aware of you from pretty young age being there. Like what brought you to Vancouver? So what brought me to Canada was I met a wonderful woman named uh, Gwendolyn. And um, I guess I met her at a good old person's gig when we were on tour. Oh, yeah. And uh, we just, you know, nothing came of it. But then I saw her maybe a year later at the uh, IBMA convention oh. and when it was in Owensboro, Kentucky. And we, we uh, ended up chatting a lot and hit it off and exchanged phone numbers. And, yeah. and she lived in Vancouver. She lived in Vancouver. And, okay. I, and she was president of the Bluegrass Club when I'd met her and oh. she was there, you know, I guess looking for bands to book. Yeah. And um, so we just started talking on the phone and decided we'd, you know, visit and, you know, really hit it off. And that was that one thing leads to another. And yeah. so that was, I guess I met her in 87 and then ended up moving to Vancouver in 92. Okay. So 31 years. Yeah. And um, I was, you know, things were kind of winding down for me in the, I mean, I was gigging and still playing with folks in the Bay Area, but it seemed like it would be an easy move for me to move to Canada. And if I needed to come back to the, to the States, I could easily. And I had uh, played enough in Vancouver that folks knew who I was, you know, yeah, yeah, there was like, um, I got gigs right away and some recording sessions right away. And just people knew, you know, of me through Tony or through the good old persons or just for whatever reason. Yeah, like since I was starting to play like in the mid nineties, you were you always seemed like a very busy fellow around around town, like more than any other mandolin player. Yeah, I guess yeah, that there was well, I mean Jesse who you used to play with, he was the only other name that came up for mandolin. Right. At the time. So um yeah, I stayed I stayed busy playing around town, playing, you know, Canadian gigs, but still going back and yeah. you know, for recording projects or whatever in the Bay Area. Was that a struggle ever, like just trying to find work at first or figure out what to do? Or were you just kind of finding good I, situations? To... I think I just I taught a lot, you know, uh-huh. to private lessons. And then a lot of times I would just fly in and out of Seattle. And when I'd fly if I had a gig in the Bay Area, I'd fly back to Seattle teach maybe, you know, four or six lessons to, to private lessons around there, yeah. then get on the, you know, the quick shuttle and yeah. head north. And yeah. then I'd be there and then I'd teach lessons there and play whatever gigs came came my way. Okay, cool. And there's, you know, a good bluegrass scene in, in Vancouver, so I'd play with local folks. There was actually, like when I was getting into like hearing bluegrass for the first time. Like I didn't come to it early on or anything. I sort yeah. of came to it as a young adult, I guess. But in Vancouver, there was like that Granville Island bluegrass festival. Yeah, that was yeah. Like pretty heavy. Like right. I saw, you know, Darryl every May, Anger yeah, and, there'd be three weekends of, of bluegrass at, at Granville Island. Yeah. Ironically, they pulled the plug right when bluegrass got popular after <laughs> Oh Brother, where are they? But anyway, be classic that as Vancouver it may, move. But, but I ended up playing with a lot of folks, and I and I, I you know I knew of you and, and Jesse playing. And so there was a good scene. Yeah. And, and I was interested in jazz and, and world music and Latin music. And there was tons so of I, that. So I'd play with some of those folks too, like yeah. Celso Machado, the great yeah. Brazilian guitarist and Sal, Sal Ferreras. Ferreras. And yeah. so I, it was pretty, pretty cool scene yeah. and still is. Yeah. Can you tell me about your mandolin? You've told yes. me about it before, but I love hearing about this thing. So sure. this is like, this is kind of the mandolin. If you're going to, if you're going to own a mandolin, this is kind of the one. 
You mean this specific one or yes, this I model? Yes, I do. And I know it's coveted, like yeah. the model too, but within the oh, model. Yeah. Yes. Tell me about the model, but tell me about this specific one. Like I know, like basically Chris Thiele wants to rob it from you and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah, like please enlighten cool us. Dead fingers. Um, <laughs> it's a Gibson F5 master model and it's one of the, you know, first, um, the original era of, of these F5s, which was were introduced by... Lloyd Lohr, who was the acoustical engineer at, at Gibson at the time, and it, they had some innovations like first uh, F-holes and an extended fingerboard and different things. So there was really, you know, kind of a, a step beyond what they had built. I guess the top of the line mandolin was an F4 prior to that. So this was a pretty different animal, even though it's still a really a, man, a mandolin. Well, just the sound howl, the mm-hmm. overall tonal uh, sound you get from is is different, um, okay. longer uh, scale. What year? I mean, no, the what scale year was is the this? same, but the neck is longer. Oh, so they, they were intru- they were introduced in uh, 1922. Yeah, and he signed the labels for the most part on all of them. How many were there through 1924? So like, just just over two years, and I don't. There's not a final number. I mean, I don't know that the record keeping was that great, but. This was the F5, but at the same time, they introduced the H5 mandola uh-huh. and the K5 mandocello and the L5 guitar. A whole So a there, whole there were all the master model line. And maybe there's, of those instruments, maybe there's 350, but sometimes they surface, you know, they come out of the woodwork. Yeah. But, um, so you know, where, that, where did this one surface? This, where did this one surface? This is in um, California. Yeah. When I was living there playing with the... Good old persons. I'd heard through the grapevine that there was a lore. That, you know, that's generally people call these mandolins lores. Wait, what year would this be? 1981. Okay. Uh, there's a lore for sale at Leo's Music, which was a pretty well-known music store, and they had an acoustic uh, vintage uh, collection, and but also a lot of high-end audio gear. Okay. So I went over to check it out and just, you know, that's the mandolin I dreamed of. You know, every bluegrass mandolin player wants one because Bill Monroe played one. Okay. And I and I played it and I thought, and I was playing with Tony at the time. Yeah. And, I, and I've told this before, I, I played it and I thought, oh, this is cool. I got to try and get it. And I called Tony from a payphone. <laughs> he said, hey, I just played a lore. And he says, oh man, you got to get it. <laughs> So I had to get it. <laughs> so what were they worth back in those days? I mean, I, you don't have to well, tell me said, what you paid for it exactly, no, I, but like, uh, what, they, like now they go for like $300,000. Yeah. No, not that much. They've come down. <laughs> have they? Yeah. But uh, at the time, the, you know, the guy I was dealing with says, well, we're going to start the bidding at 8000 So God. I guess 8000 was is about the going rate. Which probably seemed like a bloody fortune. Yeah. 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 Well, I knew I knew what they were worth and... and uh, but the fact that he said we're going to start the bidding, it's like, I, like I can't get into a bidding. I, I mean, I, I don't even know if I can raise eight thousand dollars. So, yeah. Anyway, I was able to um, sell my instruments, and I had this old D eighteen, thirty nine D eighteen that I, Whoa. it was um, I got for a real good deal and had fixed up, and then I had a nice uh, be nice to have that still. <laughs> I wish I had that. <laughs> I got that guitar for three hundred dollars. Oh was, my god! Yeah, but it was pretty trashed. Like the peg head had been broken off. But, but it, you know, once it was fixed up, it was a fantastic guitar. Yeah, 
real players grade guitar, but still nonetheless, it sounded great. So I sold that to my friend, sold my mandolin, and then I was able to get a, a loan for the balance through my a friend of my sister's who okay. had, had money. She was willing to, so I paid made payments for three years after that. Whoa. And, and uh, so he was trying to auction it off rather well, than just sell it? Or that's just, the... they, I don't know. It didn't come to that. Because okay. I, you know, I said, I'm going to get the money, you know. But David Grisman was interested. He went and checked it out. And he, oh, yeah? I think Why he, didn't he buy it? He wanted to buy it. He wanted, I think he maybe offered him 75. And then they said, well, there's <laughs> this other guy who's trying to get the money together, this young mandolin player named John Reichman and we knew each other and yeah. he said he he's told me later he said he's just well I'll just step back and if John can get it together yeah he should get it and if he can't get it together maybe I'll did Grisman own a couple already or yeah okay and um, he had just in the 60s he had owned one that was one serial number away from this oh and he had just gotten it back Okay. So he picked he, and had some repairs done. He picked it up and stopped by Leo's because he heard about the mandolin too. And then he gets it and looks at the serial number and says he couldn't believe it was one serial number away. Whoa. So he thought he'd try and get it. But then he stepped back, you know, out of respect for, you know, me trying to get it together to, because, you know, he was, he was pretty fixed for mandolins at that time. Yeah. I bet. Not that that matters, you know, <laughs> everybody wants more mandolins. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew it was a great instrument, but just the more I played it and the more people would respond to how it sounded, just people thought it was a great instrument, and, and including me. So what what is it about a mandolin that makes it so great? I guess the tone, you know, that yeah. this was pretty balanced, although it had a, has a nice low end that a lot of those instruments didn't have. Uh-huh. And in fact, some, you know, people who are really into Lloyd Lores, this is not necessarily their favorite tone for for a mandolin because they like the mid-rangey trebly sound and this is it may be you know i suspect that um i had a new fingerboard put on it right away because uh-huh. i was used to a very severely radius board oh and and uh was able to swap it out pretty seamlessly and i have the original board so it could be replaced at any time yeah but i think it, that thicker fingerboard may have added to the uniqueness of ah. character of this, the tone of this one. Okay. And also, you know, some folks say a player will play a sound into an instrument. So the the tone that I'm trying to go for is kind of, kind of a clear, deep, I don't know how to describe it, but I may have played some of that sound into it. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? But um, just yeah. over the years, people, everyone, well, not everyone, but many, many people just say that's the best one I've ever played. Nice. Including Chris Thiele. Yeah. But he's and got... he's played a few. He's got two he does. That, from that same batch. So, And they sound great. So, Have you played his? Like, are they that different? No, they sound great. They all sound... I think, well, I've, I played one of his two for sure. Yeah. And uh, when he got it, he, he called me up and he says, did yours change a lot, you know, when, when you got it? You know, because I guess he was not 100% down with the sound. Oh, yeah. And I, I said... I just said, yeah, you just got to play it and it's going to respond. Yeah. And then he got the second one. He th- he was just completely enamored with that. Really? Okay. Yeah, so to the point where the first one he called his road lore. <laughs> but now I think he, he plays them both all the time, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't talked to him about it for a while. Do you get nervous taking it out on the road at all? Or? No. 
You just take it out. No. And it travels fine. Yeah, and... what else are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, a lot I... of people have retired their valuable instruments and take, you know, like a reasonable facsimile out. No, it's, I mean, it's a small mandolin. It's easy to keep yeah. track of. Yeah. I have this especially nice early coffee case that's light. Yeah. And uh, so it's almost like I'm just super aware of it, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, I'd, if it was at home and I was away, I'd worry about it in yeah. the house burning down or something right okay yeah that's beautiful yeah i feel super fortunate to be the the custodian yeah do you get people like wanting to buy it all the time a couple times people have offered and i'm always insulted when they say really i'm not gonna sell it <laughs> yeah it's sort of like it's your it feels like it's your thing right like it's yeah your, yeah it's, got, it's my it's voice. voice yeah yeah, yeah mm -hmm. for sure and i have other nice mandolins i have a beautiful haydn uh, F5 is just yeah. a great instrument, and I, I do play that on occasion, and I have a, a nice Gilchrist uh, sort of pattern after a, a junior mandolin yeah. with a round sound hole, and that's 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 a nice different tone. Yeah, And the Haydn sounds a bit different too, but um, I'm just so familiar with what this mandolin does and the sound I can, can create. It's just, yeah. just makes all the difference. When you arrange like solo mandolin stuff, which I've seen you do, and it's really cool, like it's really kind of different or, or or playing in a very minimal setup like with a duo with like yeah. a percussion player or things like that mm -hmm. do you like how much of that kind of stuff do you work out on your own as far as like an arrangement of a standard or um, oh uh well there's a few like chord melody things that i've worked out you know like yeah. an arrangement and you know that i'll play i've seen you do like somewhere over the rainbow i think yeah. you did a really wicked arrangement there's of not that. actually a lot i don't no? like, i don't play too much solo but but there's a few i, I really was taken with chord melody you know from jazz guitarists and yeah. and Jethro Burns could play that way really well. So he was the main mandolin inspiration. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, I, I just tried and get the voicings and 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 practice it so I could make the moves as yeah. much as possible. I, I did a YouTube video of Yardbird Suite. Oh. And I'm playing, you know, the whole head and chord melody and then I go to single notes. Yeah. And then... After that, you know, there's not much more for me to do, but I, I figured out some other things to do. And yeah. I did, it's just one take and it turned out pretty nicely and yeah. I'll come back to chords. Uh -huh. So it's somewhat inspired by uh, Wes Montgomery, where I, I read this thing where he'd so, he's described his soloing as starting typically with single notes, then moving to octaves yeah. and then moving to chords. Interesting. And that's yeah. what on that Tony Rice record, Backwaters, we did on Green Dolphin Street. Yeah. And I decided I'm going to try and do this. So oh, cool. first part is single notes, and then I end up playing the melody in octaves and then chords to a certain extent. Right. Are, is there a precedent for playing some of those jazz changes on the mandolin? Well... Or are you kind of coming up with your own voicings? Uh, no, the, actually this one voicing is one as a voicing I learned from Jethro Burns at a party one time. Mm. Oh, and so you it, actually hung out with him? Yeah, just this one time. It oh, was yeah. great. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. But, really? But it's a three-note chord that can be many other chords. So, so it can be E minor 7th yeah. or a G6 or a C9 or okay. an A7th sus4. And that three right. notes. So here it is. Is a, I'm thinking of it. C9 to C6. So it's the same shape. I've just moved it up from third fret to the eighth fret yeah and that's an, a major seventh voicing yeah um, 
because I'm playing. I'm getting. That looks like a. Sweet. That's like a. That looks like a ninth chord on the guitar. Yeah, it's a it's a dominant chord. It's a, yeah. it's a E flat seven, D seven, and just adding. Yeah. Actually, I could play the. Beautiful. Something I worked up long, long time ago. Yeah. strings it's, on that yes yeah, there's there's lots of tunes you could imply that too but yeah those are and when you're when you're writing tunes like on your new album or your latest album mm-hmm. which is called new time and old, old acoustic acoustic okay <laughs> are some of those tunes like trad fiddle tunes are they all original or what's the uh, uh all but two are originals okay. There's that tune, I think it's called Serafina. Yeah. Is that your tune? Yeah. That's like pretty classic John Reichman activity yeah. right there. Yeah. Like a very laid back yeah. melody, but like all touch and feel rather yeah, than... Yeah, it's where it's, you know, it's a slow piece and key of D is great for the mandolin and you can just really milk the sustain on it and, uh, yeah. you know, it's it's perfect for that. When you write a tune like that, do you do you just kind of have a melody in mind or is it does it come out of like messing around and well, practicing? It, and, yeah, yeah. All those, uh, like sometimes, like that was just, I was sitting with the mandolin and, and uh, the first bit of the melody just kind of laid out and I just took it from there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you know, I completed it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'll just be out walking and a tune will come into my head. Okay. So I've written a bunch like that. Yeah. And then some are... And then do you, you go right back and like figure it out on the mandolin or... I'll re- get my phone out and, <laughs> and sing it. Oh, yeah? And go la, 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 la. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. And to just actually, I've, I've realized that what I have to do when I do that is I'll sing the arpeggio of the home key, just to because otherwise it some it's just like, what the hell. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's one way that and and then playing just playing around and then sometimes you know I'll think of a concept for a tune and try and do something. Yeah. But usually that's not as successful. Okay. And on the latest record too, there's a lot of um, you have a lot of guests and stuff like that. How yeah. how did you pull that off? Like did did you record that here or something? Like uh, no. Chris Eldridge is on it. Molly well, they, Tuttle's they, on they it. They and... recorded it here. No. I, okay. Chris, so you sent files around. Um, I actually, it, it was kind of started pre-COVID and then COVID happened. I continued making the record oh, okay. remotely. Yeah. So the first couple sessions were uh, were in the studio in Berkeley and it was Molly Tuttle yeah. on guitar yeah. and Alex Hargraves on fiddle, fiddle. and Max Schwartz on bass. Uh-huh. And then Allison DeGroote added banjo later. So so I had this idea, I'll get all these guys when they're home for Christmas, you know, because Molly's from the Bay Area, so I knew she'd be around. And had you known her from before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, her dad, Jack, was part of the bluegrass scene oh, right, when I, of course. When I yeah. uh, was there. We were, played gigs together and, yeah. and whatnot, and then saw her come up as this 
great musician. Yeah. And she and you know played gigs with her a little bit. I hired her to play with the the Jaybirds for a tour. And, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And um, and we stayed friends. And and she likes all my tunes, so she was yeah. she was definitely into it. And Alex. Um, is someone I just had admired his playing and he's yeah. a great guy and just brilliant player. And then Max was someone I had, I had from Berkeley, I guess, and he was a great bass player. So those, um, that was the initial session. And then I did one more live session with um, Sharon Gilchrist playing bass and Mike Witcher, the great Dobro player, yeah. and um, Molly's younger brother, Sullivan, Sully oh. Tuttle. Okay, and then things shut down, so I tried to figure out how can I keep this going. There was one tune that's a trio, and so it's Trent Freeman who lives in Vancouver and Nick who lives yeah. close by, and I thought I'll play octave mandolin, so we'll have this trio presentation. So that was live in the studio, but then a lot of it was just start with just me playing rhythm mandolin to a click and then I'd go and add the lead mandolin yeah. and keep the rhythm for and just send it around and then the one tune in particular uh, I'm really happy with the way it turned out being a rem remote recording it's called Cascadia oh yeah it's kind of a new acoustic-y thing and and sent the files to um, to Todd Phillips here in Nashville and then Chris Eldridge and for a while they thought maybe they could do it at the same time but they both ended up recording the parts without hearing each other. Really? Yeah. And it actually sounded great. Oh, so you put it all together. Yeah. With, they then, didn't have the context. In. But then, okay, then Todd went ahead and adjusted some things, but still it was, it was yeah. pretty. And then Trent added his part and it just, it sounds pretty organic to it me. It does. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that actually. Yeah. I think we all got kind of good at that a little and, bit. During and there that was one era. tune um, or two tunes where... It was the first ones I re recorded after you know I the pandemic started and I was in Edmonton uh, with my wife visiting her brother and Chris Jones, great bluegrass guitarist, um, spends a lot of time just north of there. Yeah. So I asked him to come down and we played guitar and mandolin together, but with. Uh, people adding their parts in mind. Okay. So it was a little less weird than playing just to a click yeah. or, you know, playing mandolin to a mandolin rhythm because yeah. it was two guys, you know, playing. And those, I'm happy with the, how those turned out too. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I tried all different things, but ultimately I just, you know, persevered and came up with this record. Yeah. How do you approach making a record? Like, do, does it feel like time at a certain point or do you just do it because... You kind of well, want to just have a new project to sink your teeth into? This or? last one, I felt like it was time, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, that was one thing is I had a few tunes I wanted to record, but it was one good thing about the pandemic is it allowed me more time to write more tunes because I didn't yeah. really have an album's worth of originals. Mm -hmm. I was still trying to come up with stuff, and I just had all the time in the world to write these tunes and then record them as, a, as, as I could. Yeah. Um, but for the next project, I don't know. I, I have these different ideas. Like I thought about maybe recording a series of EPs that yep. are stylistically different, mm -hmm. like one that's a bit more jazzy or maybe one that's a little bit more of the Latin music I like, Yeah, one that's even more bluegrassy than these most recent ones. Yeah, And maybe not even, you know, just not making physical copies. Right. That's a thought. I don't know what I'm going to do really. That's a good thought these days. Yeah. Yeah. 
So and then just and, we'll, and what about the Jaybirds? Like, well, when, the Jaybirds are, are definitely due for a new record. And it's been a while, and, right? Yeah, like yeah. five, six, yeah. seven years. Jim Nunley was a guitar player in the, for the longest time, and he left six years ago. And Patrick Sauber joined. It's a great addition. And he lives in L.A. or something, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And he played uh, on a couple cuts on the last record we made, but we don't have a full project with him. So, yeah. so I think that'll be the next thing I focus on is trying to get this um, Jaybirds, Jaybirds thing together. Yeah. So that's him, Nick Hornbuckle still. Yep. yep. Uh, Trisha Gannon Trisha on bass and Greg Spatz on fiddle. Greg Spatz. So okay. it's been the same personnel except for one person for 24 20? years. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a great band. Thank you. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I love those guys and I love playing with them and it feels super, you know, it feels like family. Yeah. And they're great musicians. And yeah. So that's probably the next thing that'll happen. And would you record that in Vancouver or where? I think so. Yeah. I, I don't, there's different things I've been wondering about, but I, I, there's a studio that I recorded at it, um, some of the stuff for this record that mm -hmm. I like quite. Afterlife, do you know that studio? Yeah. 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 That used to be Mushroom. Yeah. I found that room really, you know, considering the fact that I was just playing by myself uh -huh. and playing to a track, I, the sound of the, just the room acoustically was inspiring to me. And it's a big space. And it's a big space with a really high ceiling. Yeah. Like 50 foot high ceiling yeah, or yeah. something. I don't know if that's what does it or, but. It probably contributes in some way. Yeah. And I like working with John. I know there's yeah. other great studios like, you know, we, where you work and. I mean, I, I, I don't have any allegiance to any place anymore like I used to. I used to work at the factory all the time, right. which is now called Hipposonic. Right. And that's where we did that thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Last and yeah, year. that's a great studio, too. It's cool. It's nice to see it back because it was gone for 10 years. And I've recorded at Mushroom, and I, we had, I enjoyed that, too. Yeah. But, but something about that uh, afterlife in that big old school room is just yeah. – and there's, plenty, there's a nice big isolation room where the fiddle can go, yeah. where it's not a closet, but actually a, a room that's going to sound – yeah. Pretty good. And it's more affordable too than um, the warehouse or some yeah. of those other places that yeah. are getting a little pricey. Yeah. <laughs> and John, I've worked with him, uh, John Ram, on several projects with Ferris and Jason Romero. And he's, oh, he's right. a great guy and really yeah. good engineer and, you know, really good with the editing and musicians. So. Do you still play with Ferris and Jason sometimes? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I played on their most recent recording uh -huh. and play gigs on occasion. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to sit in with them a little bit at this festival called Wintergrass this oh, February. Cool. I'm going to be there with this other band. I have um, a very part-time, occasional band, and that's called John Reichman and Old Acoustic, and that's doing a lot of this more instrumental music. Yeah. Then the Jaybirds is more of a straight-up bluegrass, bluegrass singing presentation, but. This group is is pretty great. It's that bass player Max Schwartz I mentioned, yeah. and Trent Freeman, yeah. and a, a great multi instrumentalist named Brian McDowell, okay. who's playing guitar in this context. And we played a little bit already this past summer. So, what tunes are you doing with that? Uh, a, a lot of the material off this this new recording. So, and, a lot of your tunes. Yeah, yeah, that, my that are, tunes mostly, yeah. um, and not just you know, the old time and bluegrass oriented stuff, but more of the new acoustic stuff as well. Yeah. Wicked. We dusted off a tune I wrote called Birdland Breakdown that I recorded with Tony years ago. Oh yeah. Ago, so. That's on that record that I can never find. Yeah. That's right. right. <laughs> I well, it's on find it now. The CD called Devlin. Okay. So yeah. Devlin, so that's what, that's what I got to listen to then yeah. is that Devlin record. Yep. Okay. Cool. Wicked. Well, uh, thanks John yeah. for Yeah. It's great hanging. to catch up, Steve. Yeah, man. Yeah. Good to see you. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for coming by today. Yeah.
Take care. See you in Vancouver sometime. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.